Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Hello, Jerome. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you. I think the the research that you're doing is absolutely, it's fascinating. Uh, so I feel really privileged to be able to speak with you today. So I wanted to start off by talking to you today about the work that you're doing at EDGY. Um, so for those that are listening that maybe haven't heard of EDGY before, can you explain to us what EDGY is and what you guys are doing and the research that's involved. So EDGY is the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative uh, in the UK and it's a it's a project where we're aiming to recruit people who've experienced an eating disorder at any point during their life or currently. What we aim to do is is a study that looks at both genetic factors and environmental risk factors in terms of the science and we, we want to find out what how how those things interact together to to cause eating disorders also though in NG, what we're part of is a larger uh, network of um our larger biobank study overall it's called the nihr bio resource mm-hmm. and when someone joins edgy they will also join a, a recontactable bank of volunteers who who in, who are willing to be recontacted about further research because that's the other main goal of edgy that we want to make research into eating disorders um, essentially uh, faster cheaper and faster to carry out for researchers yeah and I think like you know the project that you guys are doing is so important um, and I think you know there's so many factors that do influence people being predisposed maybe to an eating disorder so I just wondered if to start with maybe you could kind of explain what we already know if anything about the genetic link to eating disorders and then if you guys have built on any of that information already through your research at edgy so eating disorders are actually quite unusual in in psychiatry as in they they somehow seem to get less attention and and there are popular memes around them as as being socially caused. Mm. But actually, eating disorders as a group of disorders have have fifty to sixty percent heritability. Wow. Now, what does heritability mean? It means the proportion of risk for developing an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, and and over half of it can be attributed to genetic factors, inherited factors. Um, now that, that's remarkable in a way, because if we can contrast it, let's say with anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression have heritabilities of around 30 to 40%. But I think in, it's more easily accepted in the, in the clinical world or in the general public that, that depression and anxiety have both genetic and environmental causes. Um, but overall, you see, then what we what we have then in eating disorders is a set of disorders which, for me as a geneticist, are fascinating because because they're more heritable. It's actually relatively easier to find um, the biological causes of those of, of eating disorders than it is, let's say, of anxiety, of depression and anxiety, for example. Um, also, eating disorders have distinct, very distinct symptoms. And our early research or 
you know, anorexia nervosa particularly is showing that they, their disorders, probably disorders with both a psychiatric and a metabolic side, that it's, it's not just that they're the classical, the classical psychiatric disorders, they're, they're actually genuinely on the, the kind of mental health and physical health interface. Okay. And does that differ from, you know, you mentioned the anxiety and depression. Is, is that where eating disorders differ in the fact that they've got that metabolic component as well? Or is, does that exist with anxiety and depression too? Um, no, not as far as we can, can ascertain. Um, there's certainly poor physical health in anxiety and depression. Mm. And that, that does mean that certain, certain things are important, like in, inflammatory markers, for example. But, but actually what we don't see in, in other psychiatric disorders is clear indications that metabolism and, and body composition are, are involved in the, in the etiology of the disorders and the causes of the disorders. Um, also, in general, the picture across the rest of psychiatry is uh, if anything is a risk factor, it might be obesity, but it's not probably the metabolism behind obesity is probably the social prejudice that people get who are obese, right? Okay. And, and, that, and that, that is the, that's possibly what, what drives associations of higher, higher BMI with, let's say, treatment-resistant depression or other, other things. Mm-hmm. And when you speak about sort of the metabolic and kind of the body composition, is that kind of the genetic side of it, those qualities being passed down from within families? Is that the thing that's kind of the genetic side of somebody developing an eating disorder or is it other things? No, it's it's both. I mean, both the psychiatric and the metabolic side of it will will have their genetic component. Um it's just that there will be slightly different genes and pathways in, involved. Um, but also I should say, you know, how, do, how do the causes unpack um, for eating disorders? So basically I'm talking mainly about the genetic component. And of course there is, a, there is an environmental component. Um, what we don't find huge evidence for though is a, a, is a very large anyway contribution from family and specific family environment we find more evidence for general environment okay general social environment Um, and there's a third factor which is is just general development i think that's the neglected factor that um um so as organisms we start out from from a sperm and an egg and and then we somehow become tens of billions of cells, <laughs> right? And we cells migrate all around the body and form tissues and form organs. And that process is, itself is complex enough that things can go subtly wrong in that process. And so, actually, there's a there's a chunk of there's a chunk of every complex disorder, including eating disorders, which is probably down to sort of just random developmental processes that that mean that someone has has either slightly aberrant brain development or slightly aberrant metabolism or a combination of the of both of those things mm-hmm. in the same way that genetic genetics can can um can drive those those things as well um and i think that i mean that sounds so interesting the fact that it's literally it could possibly be something that happens in the womb um, that could cause the development of that eating disorder. So I suppose I've got loads of questions that I want to ask you about what you've said, but the one that kind of comes to mind first is sort of without sounding rude, kind of what is the aim of edgy? Because, you know, if it's something that's happening in the womb, it, that almost sounds like something that we can't control. So is it is the aim of edgy to sort of work out those factors that could trigger an eating disorder to be able to then screen for them and prevent them or so yeah I I guess the first the first thing is understanding so I so I mean what we need as a first as a point of principle before we can actually intervene or develop new treatments we need to understand what causes something Mm -hmm. 
And that's what we're really trying to do in, in edgy, in the scientific side of edgy first off is to identify the genetic variations and the biochemical pathways that might be important either in the brain or in metabolism for these disorders. And then also the, the specific environmental risk factors that might interact with those genetic factors or add to the risk from genetic factors. Um, and I, I, I think how we use that information then is, is interesting. So, um, you know, it's remarkable that let's say only binge, I think only binge eating has an approved medication for its core symptoms of the wow. eating disorders. Uh, anorexia doesn't. Um, I think there are, there's some, there are some medications approved for depression in eating, in eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera, but not, not for the core symptomatology and, you know, simple, a simple thing is can we actually find biochemical pathways that could potentially be druggable? Mm -hmm. um, you know, can we design therapeutics then that could help people? Of course, that's a complex area within eating disorders. And, you know, it might be remarkably hard to persuade someone to take a, a medication that would, you know, that, that would not, that would correct their restrictive eating, for example, sure. that sort of thing. But, um, but the other way that we could potentially use the information is to um, in our in screening at some point in time. So not now, but, but we, we use a methodology called polygenic risk scoring. And conceivably, when our sample size gets large enough, we should be able to design a, a genetic risk prediction algorithm that could contribute a bit to overall risk prediction. Wow. So I think that. But however, that has to be kind of cautiously done because the thing about risk prediction for any disorder is that if you start to use it in a gen in general population, that risk prediction needs to be incredibly accurate. Mm. And so the first point in time that we might actually use risk prediction is let's say when someone is turning up to uh, GP or their IAP service with eating disorder symptoms. And could could we, in combination with say blood with blood blood biochemistry testing for their metabolism, also assess their genetic predisposition and use a variety of things together in a risk prediction algorithm? Then, um, but of course that brings that brings me, that brings us to the other issue around research in eating disorders because you know there isn't enough there isn't enough done um, clinically in the NHS. So we, we know that that some GPs are, are, are very good with eating disorders, but we know that a lot of, a lot of them are not. And, you know, we need to get to a world where GPs are trained up in how to identify people with potential eating disorders in order so that they can actually do the risk profiling and testing. Yeah. So um, it, it kind of sounds, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying like the first sort of, um, I guess, I don't know what the word would be, um, maybe result from this would be that if somebody comes to, you know, an IAP service or whatever, you can screen for the eating disorder based on maybe the, the genetic things that you've worked out or the metabolic pathways or the, the bloods, like you've said. And, and, their, and their symptoms and their, mm. their other things. Because, because let's say disordered eating is not, is actually a very common mm -hmm. Into the disordered eating are actually very common, but eating disorders themselves are less common. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe I think the thing is that would would genetic profiling and biochemical profiling help identify those people who are who are more seriously ill? And I guess I guess the other thing is would genetic and biochemical profiling somehow allow people to escape the BMI trap as well, right? Because BMI is is being even though it isn't supposed to be used to, to tighter services it, the resources are so scant but if it, that it is getting used and um but if we had a more objective measure of you know someone's biochemistry has has a problem as opposed to they they um they they can't they can't get down to a to a low bmi because they have a high bone mineral density um i think i think that that's a that's something and 
that we could aim to kind of replace the use of BMI, for example. Yeah, I think that would be brilliant, especially, I mean, and this, I guess, is a question for you to see if you've seen this in your research, but I feel like a lot of the time BMI is used, you know, obviously it's part of the diagnosis for anorexia nervosa, but for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder and OSFED and ARFED, that they're not, you don't use BMI. That's not one of the diagnostic criteria. So I feel like the sort of genetic and the social and all the things that you've discussed already, they could be like groundbreaking for kind of um, determining patients with the other eating disorders that we've mentioned as well that currently might be sort of dismissed because they don't show those eating disorder symptoms that doctors I suppose have come to recognize just because of the rhetoric that an eating disorder is somebody that's emaciated. Yes and I think that the but it speaks but it speaks to a scenario where there's simply not enough resources dedicated to mm. eating disorders that that only those people who are in danger of death um are are seen, are, you know, are, are, are go forward into treatment. And it was notable, let's say, during the pandemic that that services got so overwhelmed that that binge eating disorder referral pathways got closed down during the pandemic. And you know, that's that's you know, considering that it's three or four times more common than anorexia nervosa, then that's remarkable. Yeah. And have you seen, I don't know whether the research has shown this, but have you seen differences in the genetics between different eating disorders? So we've done, yeah. So at the moment, so at the moment we've only really done very large scale studies in anorexia nervosa. Mm. We published a study a couple of years ago, of almost 17,000 cases from around the world. And there we found roughly, if I was to partition it, evidence that uh, anorexia had maybe 55 to 60 percent kind of psychiatric and maybe 40 percent ish uh, metabolic mm-hmm. uh, genetics um we didn't have or we don't have the currently the sample sizes to do the same studies in bulimia and binge eating disorder but we did use and did use another methodology called polygenic risk scoring to look in a smaller sample within the study called the uk biobank and we found some indications that that um, it's the reverse metabolic pattern in in binge, in binge eating. Although the binge eating disorder um, clinical assessment in UK Biobank is just people answering a single question: okay. Have you ever been diagnosed with binge eating or psychological overeating? Um, which so it's not really very detailed. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing at the at the moment is to is to try and assemble data from cohorts around the world of binge eating where we at least have confirmation of that people endorse having a lack of control of their eating to see if we can con- conduct a, a binge eating GWAS that will allow us enough power to, to to see what its metabolic factors are and mm-hmm. to actually try and separate it out from the genetics that say not only event of anorexia nervosa but also let's say of the genetics of of obesity itself for example Uh, because you know and but I'm I'm reasonably hopeful because although I'm not a clinician I am a geneticist and there just when you have very distinct behaviors associated with a disorder very distinct symptoms then it then actually generically that makes it easier to find a genetic cause Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm quite hopeful about that about that that study we we look it looks like we'll have a sample size of about 22 or 23,000 wow wow so we'll see yeah. How that goes. yeah and something's just kind of come to my head come to my mind sorry um when you were talking about the metabolic kind of um, factors that may predispose somebody do you think that because obviously a lot of people when they experience an eating disorder their metabolism does change so have you kind of looked into the possibility that the metabolic effects may be caused by the if we're talking about anorexia here maybe the restrictive behaviors so is it sort of a chicken and egg like which one came first yeah so with um so with genetics 
we're slightly because the genetics that we look at is germline genetics. So it's basically the genetics you get from your, your parents mm -hmm. and it's genetic variation that doesn't change from when you were born until you, okay. until your illness. So, um, so to some extent, but not every extent, um, <laughs> what we find is not, a, is not being, is not being caused by the effects of having the illness. Um, we did get worried at one stage that maybe lower BMI, the fact that lower BMI is a diagnostic criteria might be driving our, our findings, but, but we've done a variety of analyses to show that anorexia risk does have an independent effect on BMI as well as, and, and that low BMI does have an independent effect on on uh, lower the propensity to have a lower BMI has an independent effect on anorexia nervosa. In addition, um, other other colleagues in the field, uh, Sadaf Faruqi in, in Cambridge has they've done a really nice study looking at constitutional thinness, mm -hmm. which is having a low BMI but no essentially mental health issues. Um, and they, they see that it's pretty much independent of anorexia nervosa. These are, these are people wandering around with BMIs of 18 who are perfectly healthy, you don't have any mental health problems. And, um, um, and it's, in, it's independent of anorexia. So, um, so and, I th and I think what we see is not so much BMI itself, but some indication that um, the genetics of fat composition uh, particularly female fat composition are the most strongly associated thing. And what and the thing about fat cells, what do they do? Fat cells produce hormones, mm. and they're they're very important in regulating all sorts of processes in the body. Um, and I suppose one one interesting factor is that um, the thing that's most because of because hormones differ between men and women. Actually, the genetics of what hormones do is they activate pieces. I mean, on a very gross level, what hormones do is they activate chunks of your DNA, mm -hmm. produce proteins. Okay. Um, and because, because hormones differ between men and women, the genes that are driving body fat composition in men and, and in women are tend to be slightly different. Mm -hmm. And we see good evidence that it's, it's, the, it's the genes that are more important in females that are more more important, more related wow. to anorexia nervosa risk. Um, in, yeah, so I mean, um, but we'll see whether that maintains when we look at when we look at other disorders. Um, I think then we what we need to do next though is we need to delve down in, into this into trying to find the proteins and pathways, biochemical pathways that are involved. Mm. And, and try to develop a kind of better understanding of specific, um, yeah, specific biology that we yeah. can then go, go and study in the lab. Absolutely. And I think like you mentioned earlier, that would then maybe mean that you could, you know, treat the disorder with medication or drugs. And I think sometimes people are against the idea of that because it's a mental illness and you want to kind of uh, deal with the mental complications but the way that I see it in depression and anxiety at least and I think it would correlate with eating disorders is often the medication is something that allows you to be at a level where you can engage in therapy as so, like you said earlier about kind of having a medication for anorexia people might want to not want to engage in it because it stops those restrictive behaviors but that would allow them to get to a healthy BMI. And, you know, it's been said so many times on this podcast that being a healthy BMI is at the point when you can then engage in therapy that you can't when you're at a low BMI. So I feel like the sort of mentality around medication would be quite similar. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would. I think it's, it's important to bear in mind that the biopsychosocial model, right, sort of mean, does mean that you should put, you, you should put kind of equal weight on but on each part of it and um and then, i mean also you know if you talk to any surgeon as i as i occasionally do they'll they'll tell you that that um treating depression and anxiety in their patients is one of the be biggest things they can do to help surgery recovery times wow right um 
and it's not it's not just a it's not just in so it's not just in um, in um, in mental health that we need that we need we need to have a joined up approach. So it's not it's not that basically it's psychotherapy or drugs. It's, and I think that clinical trial data also supports this in anxiety and depression. That it's the trials that actually do combo CBT and absolutely treatment that give you the give you the consistently the largest effect sizes. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. And then just a segue, there has been some interesting work in bipolar disorder to suggest also the same applies to, to bipolar disorder um, so that pe people, people learn better and respond better to treatment when they're, when they're properly medicated, psychological treatment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think I agree. Like, like I said earlier, I think it just allows you to be in a, in a place where you can kind of engage in that sort of therapy um, and just once we're talking about the like, anxiety and depression I know that you've been also involved in the GLAD study and I wondered if you could kind of explain if there's been any correlation between the GLAD study and then what you've kind of noticed doing the EDGY project as well. Yes so so the GLAD study is the genetic links to anxiety and depression study and we started that, that nearly three years ago now um, and we've recruited so far about 20, nearly 28,000 people into, the, into that study. So, um, and I probably should have said this for the EDGY study. It's very similar to the EDGY study. We, we ask people to do not go to our website, do an online consent questionnaire, and then we send them out a saliva kit mm -hmm. in the post. They, they can okay. send back to our labs. Um, but within, within EDGY, we, we've been struck by the number of people who endorse having a an eating disorder diagnosis. So roughly speaking, around 5,000 people in EDGY have told us that they have an eating disorder. And we see, unlike in a lot of other studies, we see a lot of people endorsing, endorsing having a binge eating disorder diagnosis. And we've confirmed that by actually give, putting the, as it were, the EDGY questionnaire as one of the optional questionnaires in the GLAD study. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that they indeed do have all of the symptoms required for for a diagnosis. Wow. Um, and yeah, and traditionally, I think it has been hard for eating disorders research projects to recruit um, binge eating disorder. But actually, in in Glad, we see that that by focusing on anxiety and depression, we actually get get a lot of people with binge eating disorder why do you think that is yeah it's hard to it's hard to know but but anxiety and depression are course core symptoms of lots of different psychiatric disorders you know so even you know even if you look at schizophrenia maybe 40 44 percent of schizophrenia cases would meet diagnostic criteria for major depression depression wow and um what may be happening, though, I think, is that um, anxiety and depression are quite treatable. There's an existing clinical, existing and popular clinical service in IAPT for, mm -hmm. for anxiety and depression. And so a lot of people maybe identify their anxiety and depression because they're aware, uh, also maybe more aware of it, and then they see treatment for it, and then they think of themselves as having an anxiety disorder or ha having depression but maybe they're not aware that they have an eating disorder or maybe it's not mm. the thing that they want to seek treatment for. Uh, and maybe that's why we see more of it, more of it in, um, in GLAD. Um, mm. But either way, I'm just really, yeah, it's, it's kind of, yeah, GLAD is one of the studies where you can, you can find it. Find it hard. Uh, anyway, I'm glad that people, <laughs> people, people have, those people have joined GLAD because yeah. it's um, otherwise, you know, I think, I think across GLAD and, and edgy, we're we're coming up on eight eight thousand seven or eight thousand people with an eating disorder diagnosis, with both genetic and and quite detailed uh, clinical information, uh, which is actually is actually very a very large sample, uh, which is important because you know the other, I mean, for disco genetic discovery, we typically need large samples, but the other reason is that let's say if someone if a researcher wants to do study where they compare effects of an intervention or other things across let's say bulimia and binge eating disorder they can mm -hmm. come to 
come to us and we can we can we have this recontactable bank of people who've actually said that they're willing to be recontacted about future research Yeah. yeah, I think that's brilliant, the fact that you're building up this bank to allow people, because I think, like you said before, there just does need to be so much more research. And, you know, this is a fantastic starting point of working out, like you said, the biochemical pathways and stuff. But also, I think, you know, we know that eating disorders, there's so many different causes. And I can imagine that it must feel like a minefield sometimes of, you know, not everybody's going to have the same... I feel like it's a strange one because kind of I I feel like we know maybe I'm wrong but the cause of a lot of things we know but I feel like with this it's kind of the crossover of loads and loads of different things that could possibly be the cause of it somebody could have had a traumatic experience which could have developed it and I don't know I guess my question to you is do you think that it's always somebody sort of born with the predisposition and you might not know this yet I'm kind of just putting it out there or do you think that it's they're born with it and then there's a trigger and then it happens and without that trigger it wouldn't have happened yeah so I mean yeah it's it's hard to know I mean I think some models yeah I mean yeah I mean basically all I mean it's one of those scenarios where all models are wrong but some models are useful <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so the the idea then is i think we 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 use this thing we call we call basically the liability threshold model but but which which genetic counseling uh colleagues i mean janine austin has actually translated as as a jam jar model basically the idea that you can you can fill up you can fill up a jar until you until it until it overflows and then you have a disorder Mm -hmm. um and actually, that's one of the things to th- to to think about here that that we all have um, some innate risk for a, a large set of disorders. You know, we might have, and we might know this from our own families looking back at them. That we, okay, we might know that we have probably a higher than average chance of developing diabetes, or a lower than average chance of having cancer, or other other things, mm. just by looking at our family. Um, and this, for eating disorders, yes, I mean, the usual environments, especially trauma and other things are quite important in eating eating disorders. But maybe the genetic genetics comes in then in terms of, um, yes, yes, influencing whether or not someone develops uh, a mental health disorder, but, but maybe also maybe it's more, more importantly, maybe influencing which mental health disorder they might they might develop because trauma is important across the whole the whole sweep of, of psychiatric disorders i think it might be less slightly less important than bipolar disorder but it's quite important in, in schizophrenia quite important in depression anxiety and in eating disorders and in and in adhd so um so i think the um yeah so so maybe it, it's it's an it's an individual predisposition, but but yeah, but maybe I think as I once said to someone that that um, people, I think this person had had a traumatic event and they, you know, basically I suppose the question was why why did they, why did they develop eating disorder and not and not depression or anxiety, for example, and and that's where genetics I think has its has its most most of its specific influences of work. Okay. Um, because that because that type of genetic type of genetics I'm talking about is pretty much um, it's a push in one direction, and then the environment can come in and put, have a further push, or it can amplify the genetic effect. That's another way to think about it. Um, or you could also think about it as the genetic effect and amplifying the environmental effect, mm-hmm. right? But but um, yeah, and then there's also this this thing about develop development. You know, so it just may be the, it just may be the, the thing that that um, that that something that has gone wrong in in child development, from an in some organ or in the brain, and that causes that causes an issue. And it doesn't have to be anything strikingly obvious, right? These are incredibly complex systems, and it could just be mild dysfunction. 
And that's the thing about eating disorders. Eating disorders have extreme behaviors and they cause biochemical things to go wrong. And if your body isn't actually biochemically robust, if, if you find that a biochemical, a biochemical pathway breaking down when it's supposed to in, in normal people will, will, will have, let, let's say a simple issue is normally, let's say hunger would overwhelm any reward that you, people get from restricting. But let's say in, in anorexia nervosa, that doesn't appear to be the case. And it's a, it's, that suggests a very ba basic biochemical issue get, getting in the way. Um, whereas that, that, that response is stronger in, in most, in stronger, is stronger in most people. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've never really thought about it in that way that it could have that impact, but I suppose, I mean, it makes complete sense. Um, and what I wanted to ask was how you sort of determine these things, because I can't think of the word, but I did biomed as my undergrad, so I should know the word. But you know, when you do a study and then it's sort of, so you were talking earlier about like the developmental thing in the womb or whatever. How, when we're in research, do we kind of know that that was maybe what caused it? How do you backtrack? Is it, is it is like bias or like, it's the word when you ask people to like recall what they had for dinner? And well, it's like no, I mean, the, 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 the developmental thing, I, I mean, I keep mentioning it, but it's, it's almost impossible to actually address properly. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I think that the, way, the reason that I say that is that I don't think we should, we should be far more cautious as researchers in trying to say that we were explaining 100% of something. Because I think from a, a principled biological developmental standpoint, it basically should be impossible to explain 100% of mm of any complex human behavior or disorder. But instead, we should be relatively happy that we can explain a large chunk of this. Yeah. Um, uh, but I suppose the other thing is, though, if development is causing issues biochemically, right, I would expect the genetics, the things caused by the genetics to point to the same biochemical problems mm -hmm. or the same organs and the same, same genes. Or well, the, the systems that are affected, or not the genes, but but the but so basically, the genetics genetics can give us an anchor, as in we can we can we can latch onto the biochemical causes, mm -hmm. and then hopefully, then that even in non-genetic cases, we can we can we what we find will be useful. Yeah. No, and I'm really glad you said that because I think that is one thing we do need to be cautious of is it is such a complex disorder, like you're saying. And I think often we try to just simplify it. Like, you know, oh, there's environmental factors, social factors, psychological, um, physical, blah, blah, blah. And we try and bum, bum, bum. And, you know, if you've got those factors all lined up, then you're going to get an eating disorder. But it's not simple like that. And I think that's why I take my hat off to you because I think you're doing an incredible job of something that is so big and so complex. Right, well, thank you, yeah. But I mean, I think the, yeah, it's, it's the uncertain. I mean, basically the thing is that if you, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty, I think if you're working on these dis disorders um, and uh, everything, everything is, is kind of evolving um, but, in, but one thing I think that gives me hope, though, is that in the last decade or so, we've made enormous strides in, in psychiatric genetics in, ge in general, and in the last five years in, in, um, in eating disorder genetics. Mm -hmm. So soon, I think we'll have, you know, the same quality of evidence or, and building up for specific genes and pathways in eating disorders that we currently have let's say for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or, or depression, which have, have amassed larger sample sizes more quickly mm. than in eating disorders. Um, but I think if we have, but if we have the evidence though, we can't, it makes it easier though, then to apply for, let's say research grants, it makes it easier to seek out collaborations with people that might be useful, such as endocrinologists, for example, uh, people who actually understand biochemistry much better than I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So do you think, this is a big question, do you think there will ever be a day or do you think that, I don't know whether you want is the right way to put it, that eating disorders don't exist or is that unrealistic? 
Um, I think it's un it's unrealistic to expect us to be able to to fully prevent mental health disorders in general. But I do think that we'll get to a place where we'll be able to spot people and diagnose people much more quickly. Mm. And I, I would hope that having a standard, you know, have, I mean, this is this could it's a bit dystopian, utopian, right? So, but eventually, mm -hmm. we are heading towards a world where, you know, in thirty or 20, 30 years time, every baby will have uh, prenatal genetic or postnatal genetic screening. They'll have their their genome sequence lodged when they get ill their their doctor will look at it and figure out try and figure out whether or not they've got a higher disposition for that they'll probably have better biochemistry and be able to test eight or nine thousand proteins in a single blood sample then wow. and and get you know a better a better uh readout so i so i yeah but i think the scope for eating for improvement in eating disorders is massive though um, so if, if we can enable faster, faster and quicker diagnosis, um, then we get, we'll get much better outcomes overnight. Um, yeah. that, that has to be one of, one of the aims. Um, unfortunately we can't eliminate eating disorders, but we, what we can do is make sure that the outcomes are better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it, so right, because, you know, the, the research shows that the longer somebody's suffering, the harder it then is for them to have a life free from their eating disorder. So like you said, if we can, if we can diagnose it and we can prevent it from getting any worse at a quicker rate, I think that's a great place to be. I guess the other question I have for you, and this isn't really a researchy question, I guess it's more of like a, a per, not personal, but um I guess a lot of the characteristics that well, we haven't spoken about characteristics today, but the characteristics that do predispose somebody to an eating disorder. I've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast and, you know, they're not grateful for their eating disorder, but almost thankful that they've had it because it's it's helped them to kind of grow as a person or succeed. So it's not really a question for you, but I think, like you said before, getting rid of eating disorders completely it's almost it's almost asking to get rid of the personality traits so I think if we can prevent the the personality traits getting out of order and developing into an eating disorder fantastic but still allowing somebody to have those characteristics you know the perfectionism or the you know being very committed being very determined and things like that and this is talking about anorexia specifically mm -hmm. but I don't think things like that should necessarily be seen as a negative or kind of abolished no and and indeed they're what they're what they're doing is acting as additional risk factors you yeah. know they, and they themselves are partially i mean perfectionism and other things is partially genetic partially environmental in and of itself mm -hmm. and but it but it is it is notable though that we that in in anorexia that we see we see no evidence that they have a genetic relationship with iq per se but we see a large relatively large genetic correlation with educational attainment and then and then that's the that's the sort of uh, perfection probably anyway the perfectionism drive um in, in people um yeah no i mean I, I i think yeah so we should allow i mean basically that's the goal isn't it so that's the goal to allow people to be themselves without actually getting 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 hugely ill yeah and what a lovely way to sum it up, just be yourself without getting ill. I guess the only other question I had was, you know, we've, we've kind of spoken there about the um, the personality traits. Do you know anything about the sort of personality traits that predispose someone to eating disorders like bulimia and binge eating disorder? Because I think it's a lot less spoken about. Yeah, I mean, the, I don't know. I don't know that literature in depth, um, but, I, but I, I, I think that it's, it's it's more complex. I mean, I know in binge eating disorder, right? There are there are there's overlap with addict addictive behaviors, addictions. Um, bulimia, I think it's a little bit of a little bit of both uh, things. But we one of the things that we did though during the pandemic is that we ran um, uh, 
a fairly intensive monitoring questionnaire in our GLAD and in our EDGY cohort. And we've actually got people to fill in a fairly detailed personality questionnaire. So I think we've now got sort of basically 200 questions measuring about 12 different scales on wow. people. And actually, we're, we're actually, we'll be looking at this over the next six months in, in a fair amount of depth. What are the personality character, characteristics across different eating disorder diagnoses and how do they compare to people with anxiety and depression and how do they compare to controls? Uh, because, you know, that, I think that, I think that's an, that's an important issue. Um, I think the other issue just to bear in mind though, as well, is that there's an awful lot of people out there who transition from one eating disorder to another. Yeah. And it's anorexia to bulimia is quite well understood, but actually there's a lot of people who transition from anorexia to binge eating and even in, even in reverse. Mm. Um, and so we're, we're, at, we're also asking people about that in, in edgy at the moment to try and get, get, get an idea of what is driving people from one extreme to the other. And how do, and, you know, and then that's also maybe a failure of clinical services as well, that, mm. that uh, someone relapses, but they relapse with a slightly different eating disorder, then they maybe they don't get treatment and yeah. then that, that eating disorder becomes established. Um, yeah, but but anyway, but we're, we're we are trying to look at trying to look at that, and we will we'll, we'll, we will hopefully be publishing on that in the next year or so. Yeah, and it's really interesting that because I wanted to ask you about that transition because you know, like you said, it does seem like one extreme to the other. They're quite as you know, if we're talking about anorexia to binge eating disorder, they're kind of two ends of the spectrum of this restriction but then you know this mm -hmm. overeating on the other side and do you have any idea how they could be linked is, is do you think there's a genetic element or yeah there's pro i mean i mean but i don't know we, we're we're going to do a study a bit later but there's possibly a common disordered eating factor mm -hmm. right but but we we don't know how large the how large the genetic overlap between binge eating disorder and anorexia is but we will, but we will know later on, later on this year, I hope. Brilliant. Um, well, I'll get you back on and you can explain, you can explain what you find out. Um, it's been so nice to chat with you. I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, and it's quite nice as well, because I feel like I did my master's in eating disorders and I did my undergrad in biomed. So it's like the two merging together. Um, so got a few flashbacks of my genetic modules. Um, I just wanted to ask you at the end, um, if somebody's been listening and they want to get involved in the edgy study, um, is there like kind of criteria that they need to fit in order to get involved and where can they find out more? So um, if they want to find out more, they go to edgyuk.org. Mm -hmm. So edgiuk.org. Um, and there aren't, so we basically ask people if they, if they've had an eating disorder at any point during their life or currently, or if they think they've had an eating disorder. Okay. Because we know that there are a lot of people out there who haven't been diagnosed or can't get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think the other thing then is if someone is not suitable for, if we think someone's not suitable for edgy, then we, we often invite them to join GLAD um, okay. uh, as well. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, basically the people should sign up and do the questionnaire. The questionnaire in edgy is shorter than the GLAD questionnaire. Mm -hmm. The GLAD questionnaire takes about 40, 45 minutes. The edgy one takes about 20, 25 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then if, if people meet criteria, then we send them out a, we send them out a saliva kit in the post. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but what we, what we say people meet criteria, it's not a diagnosis though. We say that, yeah. that according to their questionnaire answers, they could have an eating disorder. So we yeah. send them out a kit brilliant and I think that's something that we all need to kind of take on board a bit more is that just because you've not been diagnosed with a specific eating disorder doesn't necessarily mean that you're not struggling um, and don't need help which I think is something that we really do try and talk about on this podcast so thank you for bringing that 
And also, I just wanted to say, if you do want to get involved and you're slightly concerned, maybe about doing the spit sample or something, I have done it myself. And it's very, very easy. Um, and it feels very nice to be part of such a big study that's making such a difference. So thank you very much, Jerome. It has been lovely to speak to you. And thank you for letting me take up your evening. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for having me on. I hope we can talk again in the future. It was fascinating to have that conversation with Jerome and to hear about the research that they're doing at Edgy. Please, if you've been listening and would like to get involved, head over to the Edgy website to see how you can. It's so cool to be part of research, but also so important that we're using our own experiences to help benefit others. Next week, we'll be joined by Keisha Thomas. Keisha is a nutritional therapist, but she also is from the black community. And together we discuss how eating disorders present differently and how they're seen differently, maybe not even at all. What we get so much here is this assumption that everybody is aiming for the thin ideal. Whereas, yeah, like you said, in the black community and black communities, it's not necessarily that thin is the thing that is quote unquote ideal. What's often praised is the is the curves, the hips, the chest. Mm. What's also often praised is how straight a person's hair might naturally be, how, how shapely a person's nose may be, the colour mm. of their skin, the shade of their skin. So these are the things that come into sort of when we think about body image and within the black community. But if you think about that's black people within black spaces. Now, when you take a black person out of a black space and put them into a predominantly white space where they are now the minority, now we have this um, a cultural process that has to go on where a person is now trying to fit in with that group. So this is where the thin ideal might become internalised of like, well, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. Order. See you next time. Bye.